0: The New Testament reading is from Matthew 5, 21 through 32. You have heard that it is said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. For it is better for you to lose one hand uh, for one of your members than your whole body to go to hell. It's also said that whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. One Ancient Hope, it's it's good
1: to be with you this morning, and if this is your first time here uh, at One Ancient Hope, we're, we're very glad that you are here, and, and I would encourage you to, to stick around after the service so we can get a chance to um, connect with you before the morning is over. And for the last few weeks, we have been going through the Gospel of Matthew, and in particular, as of late, we've come to the sermon On the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, what Christ presents us with is a beautiful, a compelling, an attractive form of life. And towards that end, let us come before the Lord in prayer that we might see this form of life as such, that we would see the beauty, that we would see the compelling nature of the life. That Christ calls us to let us pray God our father we thank you for for your word we thank you especially for this passage we thank you Lord for the life that you have called us to a life that is steeped in love for you but also love for our neighbor and Lord as we look into this passage we pray that you would apply these truths to our hearts And also, Father God, that we would come to see the promise of the gospel that here undergirds all that your son has to say to us. And it's in his name, the name of Christ, that we pray. Amen. Well, uh, there's a helpful New York Times article that I came across recently, and it's, it's about how to learn to appreciate visual art. And the article says the following. It says, art is good for you, but it's not spinach. Its purpose is not to make you healthier or wiser, although that could happen along the way. The reason to nourish a relationship with art is the same as the reason for bonding with other people, to feel more fully human. And so what is this article saying? Well, it's, it's telling us that learning to appreciate paintings Fine paintings is good for you, but it's, it's not like spinach. It doesn't necessarily make you healthier and, and wiser. It's not good for us in that sense. Rather, it's, it's good for us because it makes us feel more fully human. And it's interesting because there's, there's an assumption that's running through this passage, and it's that feeling more human can actually be disconnected from becoming wiser. Learning to appreciate and so to better see visual art will not necessarily make you wiser. But we have to ask, wouldn't rightly seeing the greatest work of arts, the greatest works of art, wouldn't that be deeply connected with wisdom? Wouldn't we need wisdom to fully appreciate what it is that we're seeing? Wouldn't we need wisdom and patience to fully comprehend the the expressions, the actions, the subtle details on the persons that are painted? For instance, wouldn't we need wisdom to to appreciate the universal humanness of the paintings, to appreciate their life and, and what gives them enduring significance? And wouldn't such wisdom make us more fully human? What if spinach and appreciating art actually are very closely connected? Yes, spinach feeds the body, and that's important because we as humans are embodied creatures, but so too does seeing rightly feed us. It feeds our intellects that know, it feeds our wills that love, it feeds our relationships that frame absolutely everything that we do. And the article's right. That's a good goal, to be more fully human. But being more fully human precisely is a matter of being wiser, a matter of seeing art, but also all other things rightly. Art appreciation is a skill that requires a lot of work and discipline. And after years of training our eyes to see art rightly, Well, we can come to appreciate it more than any untrained eye ever could. Yes, it's a practice that takes a lot of discipline, but it leads to the greatest joy in what is seen. It makes us more fully human, and it makes us wiser. Each of those presupposes the other. And as we've said throughout the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount is about flourishing. It's about happiness. It's about becoming what God intends us to be. It's about being fully human. The Sermon on the Mount is about ethics. And ethics is about happiness. It's about the good life. And and throughout the sermon, we've we've borrowed a framework from the philosopher Alistair McIntyre from his book, After Virtue. And he says that ethics operates within a four-part structure. We have a notion of flourishing, of happiness, the good life of being fully human. We have the virtues. We have practices to cultivate the virtues. And we have a moral tradition in which ethics is operating. And what do the virtues do? Well, the virtues are those qualities, those excellences that direct us to the good life. They rightly orient, relate, dispose, connect us, direct us to the true form of human flourishing. And as we looked at, Christ actually gives us nine virtues, the nine virtues of the Beatitudes. And through practices, we grow in developing these virtues. These practices grow us in the virtues of the beatitude by living according to the moral tradition of God's law. And all of this directs us to the good life, to happiness, to the life that God intends, to being fully human. And one of these virtues, one of these beatitudes, addresses seeing. As Christ tells us, Flourishing, happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And like one who learns to rightly see visual art, to identify it, to appreciate it, to to discern it well and, and wisely, well, Christ also calls us to practices of seeing rightly. And in so doing, he tells us, our hearts shall be purified and we shall see God. And for today's passage, we could focus on any of the nine beatitudes, but today we're going to focus on that beatitude that addresses seeing. Because in today's passage, Jesus instructs us in three practices to rightly see, and so to become wiser, and so to become more fully human. And those three practices are seeing ourselves, seeing others, and being seen by God. So let us look at each of those in turn, seeing ourselves. So the first passage, or the first section of the passage that we're looking at today, it addresses the topic of anger. And Christ begins by explaining, well, this was said before, this was said of old. And it's important to note that Jesus here is not contrasting his teaching with earlier prohibitions on marriage. He's not setting his teaching against the Ten Commandments. Rather, he's showing just how deeply these commandments go. Christ is like the light that develops a a polarized picture of the law. Christ is that light that shines upon the picture. It doesn't change or abolish the picture. What it does is it brings out more fully the image that's already there. It helps us see it more clearly. And what does Christ tell us in developing this image? Well, he tells us that murder is not only a physical action, but actually it's also a disposition of our hearts. In saying this, Christ is directing us to wholeness. He's telling us that our affections and our loves They need to be aligned with our actions. The Sermon on the Mount is a guide for being integrated, bringing our actions and our desires together. The Christian life is not just about actions, and it's not just about the heart. Christ tells us it's about both. If our heart is pure, that will necessarily overflow into our actions. But even more, If we have right actions, those practices will work to purify our heart. Christ cares about the whole person. He seeks the integration, the togetherness of the physical and the spiritual aspects of the human. However, this is not to say that wrongful anger and the physical act of murder are precisely the same thing. All sins make us worthy of God's judgment of death. But that does not mean that all sins are equal. Some are worse. And Christ himself tells us this when he says uh, to the cities that he's visiting, the cities that have witnessed his ministry, he tells them it will be better for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah on Judgment Day than it will be for you. Because they've seen, they've experienced, they've tasted firsthand his ministry. Yes, any sin holds us in condemnation before God. God is just that just. God is just that righteous. However, some sins are worse. And the same distinction will hold for the next topic, that of adultery and lust. So with that said, let's ask ourselves, how does Christ present the topic of anger? Well, he says, everyone, everyone who is angry, not just some people who are angry, but everyone. That's who he's addressing. If you are angry at anyone for any reason, Jesus is talking to you. There's such a thing as unrighteous anger, and we should be angry at the injustice of the world, and often we experience that injustice personally. However, if that anger ever slips into calling another person a fool, if it ever slips into dismissive and disparaging speech, either with our minds or by our lips, then Christ tells us that we are playing with fire. If we ever think to ourselves, what an idiot, what a fool, what an uneducated moron, what a right-wing moron, what a leftist imbecile, what a naive, What a self-righteous hypocrite. If we're ever tempted in our hearts to say any of those things, then we have lapsed into unrighteous anger. If our anger ever ceases to love the person, then the anger is not righteous. Even amidst Jesus' harshest word to the Pharisees, we can never forget that he dies in love for them, too. Anger without love, Jesus tells us, is murder. So then, what do we do? Well, we rightly see ourselves. Jesus calls us to these kinds of practices, to looking at our own hearts. Notice that Christ begins looking at our anger toward someone else. The assumption seems to be someone has done something wrong for you, against you, and you are angry, so angry that you're tempted to this dismissive, disparaging speech. But then he does something interesting. He seems to move to what we have done against them. He moves from an anger that calls someone to a fool, and then naturally he says that leads to, well, remembering something that you have done against someone else. So we have to step back a minute. Wait, wait, what's, what's going on here? Who's the one that's done wrong? Has, has Christ just shifted the whole conversation? Has he changed the discussion? Well, no, Christ is supposing that generally speaking, if there's a conflict, then both parties in some way, shape, or form are in the wrong Even if it's primarily the fault of the other person, Christ is telling us that we should be seeking reconciliation by confessing, by repenting of our wrongs. Christ calls us to see ourselves rightly, and that means that when we are angry, we are to search our own hearts and closely examine how we have wronged the other. Even if our wrong is maybe only 1% of that conflict, Christ calls us to seek out, to restore that relationship by apologizing and to seek to make right, even if it's 1%. And perhaps surprisingly, especially in our present moment, Christ tells us that this often works, that reconciliation actually does happen. When you go and do this, Christ is saying it's not unlikely that the hardness of heart of the other person actually well will melt. Their relationships are actually restored and we can avert such things as as lawsuits which, which are never good for relationships. If you come to the other confessing what you've done it's not unlikely that they themselves will soften. And this is especially true when we present our gift on the altar when we come before God. If we are Christians, then we are persons who have been reconciled to God by the work of Jesus Christ. The one who has done no wrong at all to us, the one who has only done good, comes to us and makes peace. In that case, 100% of the fault for that relational fallout between God and humanity, all of it rests upon us. But God seeks us out and makes reconciliation with us. He reconciles us to himself, and so we cannot rightly approach this reconciling God without seeking to be reconciled to our neighbor. If the blameless one works to reconcile us to himself, then certainly we who are with blame should seek out reconciliation with those that we have wronged. Otherwise, we've missed the whole point. We've missed the whole logic of Christ's work. So ask yourself, where is there anger in your heart? To whom are you tempted to be dismissive or disparaging? And ask yourself, what wrong have you done in these relationships? Think hard about it and then seek to be wholly and fully reconciled to that person. Spouses, this is an especially important practice for marriage. And parents, this is especially important for you too. And I'm very much uh, speaking to myself here. But as parents, we will wrong our children often. And when we do, we should apologize to them. If you've never apologized to your children, then you are keeping them from rightly seeing yourself and also rightly seeing themselves. In our modern media world, where no one seems to confess or repent or forgive, this is the practice that Christ calls us to. And by this practice, we come to see ourselves rightly. Remember... It takes discipline to, to learn to rightly see uh, paintings in an art museum, and, and how much more discipline will it take to learn to rightly see ourselves? We are these complex, fallen creatures made in the very image of God. It's a difficult thing to see rightly. And of course, when we do this, This will also help us see others rightly. And that brings us to our second point, seeing others. The next section of the passage, Christ brings us to the question of lust and adultery. And he he lays it out just like he lays out anger. If you have committed lust, you have committed a form of adultery, just as if you've said a dismissive or disparaging word, you've committed a form of murder. And you may have never committed the physical act of adultery, but Christ is warning us that lust means that you have sought after this in some way, shape, or form. But notice the way that Christ presents this topic. He speaks of anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent. Notice the framing. Theologian Peter Lightheart makes an important point here. He says that Christ does not blame the woman, but the man who looks at her. Yes, modesty is important for both men and women, but it's not uncommon for Christian literature to lay the blame of lust on women and to simply assume that to be a man is to lust. Uh, Sheila Ray Gregoire, Rebecca Gregoire Lindenbach and Joanna Sawatsky in in their book, The Great Sex Rescue, they make this very point. They explain how how one particular book that's popular with young Christian men simply assumes that no matter what, these men cannot help lusting after the women that they see. The book points out that when young women are exposed to this message, they can become terrified. Going to church can become an uncomfortable experience because they believe that any man that looks at them simply by virtue of being a man must be lusting after them. They can begin to see the church not as a place of community and fellowship, but as a place of of hungry and aggressive eyes. And this is dangerous for men also because lust becomes normalized. It's not something to combat and to cure. It's just something that we come to expect of men. Again, modesty is important for men and women. But here it's assumed that the way to avoid lust is is not to change the way that we look at women, but to lay upon the shoulders of women to do everything they possibly can to stop these looks. And if a male does lust, then it's assumed that in some way, shape, or form, the woman has some blame. But Christ, he lays the responsibility upon the man And, of course, this is also true for for women, for anyone who struggles with lust. Lust is a way of looking at another person. And in this case, the solution is not for men to not look at women. In that case, women would be ignored and would be dehumanized. The solution is for men to rightly look at women. And this is what Christ calls us to again (laughs) The virtue, the beatitude tells us flourishing, happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. When we look at another person, we are to see the very image of God. And that's a very weighty thing. We're meant to see one who represents the very God of the universe. Christ urges us to see the neighbor in this way, however modest or immodest they might dress, however much they might help our career or not, however much they might lend us status and respect or connections or not. Each person is a wonder, each person bears the image of God, but lust causes us to see the other as a tool, as an instrument for our own pleasures and purposes. We start to see the other person in terms of what they can do for us. We instrumentalize them. And this is so dangerous that Christ commends us to take radical actions if necessary. He gives the figurative image of taking out our eyes or cutting off our hands if need be. He's telling us it's so important to see the image of God in our neighbor with a pure heart that radical actions may be necessary. We might call these radical practices. Consider one example of a a radical practice. The writer and professor Jeffrey Bilbro. he he recently wrote a wonderful article entitled, Why I am not going to buy a smartphone. And Bilbro doesn't mean to condemn those who have a smartphone, far from it. He's not attempting to present himself as wiser or more noble No, that the whole essay is about how he doesn't trust himself. He writes, Not owning a smartphone doesn't make me more virtuous. The truth, in fact, lies in the opposite direction. I don't own a smartphone because I know I lack the virtues needed to use it well. He's not rejecting technology. Bill Burrow points out, for instance, that he has a Twitter account. Instead, he just doesn't trust how he himself would use this particular technology. He doesn't trust himself with the constant capability to check websites, to buy things, to to check out of uneventful situations and escape into the screen. He's not buying a smartphone because he thinks more of himself, but because he thinks less of himself. And he points out that this decision can feel like pushing against the inevitable. He points out that often we need smartphones now to access restaurant menus, to get taxi rides, even to enter certain buildings. But it doesn't have to be inevitable. If you are intentional, you can fight against it. But Bilber points out that this does require community dependence, for instance, When he gets lost driving, he doesn't have a map function, so he either has to actually pick up a phone and call one of his friends, or a stranger still, stop, get out of the car, and ask a local for directions. And he points out that not having a smartphone actually makes him more dependent upon community, which he argues is a good thing. And in response, we have to ask ourselves, what do we assume is simply inevitable, What do we assume we simply have to do or have, but actually isn't? And this answer, to answer this question, will require us to think intentionally, to to, to go through all of those things that make up our daily practices, to literally take nothing at all for granted. For example, do movies make you struggle with lust? The culture simply assumes that we will watch each and every new release, but it's not inevitable. You can simply not do it. You can stop watching movies to help you kill lust. Film is a powerful and important art form. I don't mean to demean it in any way, and it's important for Christians to be involved in the filmmaking process, absolutely. However, if you simply watch each new release that comes out, you will absolutely see things you shouldn't see. Scenes that will tempt you to look on others with the instrumentalizing gaze of lust. Or perhaps for a more or less radical option, depend on your community for advice in terms of what movies you should stay away from. This is your community protecting you. Or perhaps for you, it might be best to quit social media It may or it may not. But perhaps for you it is a cause of of lust, of, of envy, of jealousy for others. Perhaps it takes too much time. Perhaps you've decided to quit. Well, great, do it. And if you do, you will need the help of your community to be filled in on everything that's happening. You will need your community to stay up to date with the information that you need. For instance, if social media is a continual source of struggle with you and the only reason you stay on it is to access our church's Facebook page, please quit it right now. And I promise we will find another way to keep you informed. And even better, our community working to inform you will actually better integrate you into the community. As Bilbro writes, dependence cultivates community. There is no community without need without dependence. Or perhaps a smartphone is a source of continual struggle because it does open you up to essentially unlimited access to pornographic content. And this content absolutely will train you to see other people as mere tools to satisfy your desires, to satisfy your pleasure. If that's the case, follow Bilbrow's example and throw the smartphone into the fire. Don't be afraid to take radical actions. Christ is saying this is extremely dangerous. Lust is death. Lust will make you miserable. It will keep you from the purity of heart. that will keep you from seeing the image of God in your neighbor, from seeing the God-given dignity of each and every human person. And so step back and catalog what it is that you do. Stop anything that causes you to see your neighbor as an instrument. And as you do this, as you practice intentionality, you will come to see the image of God in your neighbor. For instance, it's a common PCA practice, or our denominations for pastors, and, and this is true for one Ancient Hope, for pastors never to see the specific details associated with the church's giving. I see the monthly totals as one lump sum but but I never see how much any particular member is giving. I have no idea when or how much any person gives. And the PCA makes this a common practice not because pastors are above matters of money, but precisely because we are not. We don't trust ourselves to use this information well. Better to know better not to know these specifics than to be tempted by way of them. And so ask yourself, what radical practices might you need to institute in your life to keep you away from looking upon others in a way that instrumentalizes them? The image of God that we see, that we should see in every person calls us to love and to service, not lust or instrumentalizing. And from here, We see Christ in the passage moving next to marriage, and this is a natural step. It's a continuation of learning how to rightly see our neighbor. To begin with, the lustful instrumentalizing gaze is one reason why the Christian conviction of keeping sexual intimacy within marriage is so important. So serious is God that we should never instrumentalize another person, never reduce them to one particular function of their body, that such physical intimacy can only be practiced within the context of a man and a woman giving themselves wholly to the other in a lifelong commitment. God will not allow us to reduce other persons to tools for meeting our needs. This isn't prudish, it's protective. It's not repressive, but realistic. This keeps us from seeing others as instruments, as tools for meeting our needs, and pleasures Christ does though offer a valid ground for divorce He speaks of adultery and Paul will also speak of another valid reason in 1st Corinthians chapter 7 He'll speak of abandonment and, and from my interpretation my reading of Paul Abandonment also includes abuse that would keep a spouse and possibly children from staying safely in the home A spouse in this situation has been forcibly abandoned because they cannot safely come home. But scripture tells us that divorce and remarriage cannot be done for reasons other than this. If you have divorced for an invalid reason, Christ offers forgiveness. That's the whole point of the gospel. But going forward, we all must learn to live in the boundaries that Christ has set us. And recall that when Christ talks about lust, he lays the burden of lust on the one who does the lusting. He follows the same logic here. When marriage gets difficult, and and I'm here speaking of marriages free from exceptional cases of bad treatment, one spouse is tempted to look upon the other and say, you are the reason why things are hard. You are the reason that I'm unhappy and unfulfilled. You are the cause of my struggles. If I just had a more successful, a more attractive, a more esteemed spouse, then I'd be fine. We make the mistake of thinking that the spouse is the eye that must be gouged or the hand that must be cut off. But Christ tells us we are wrong. It's not the spouse that causes us to sin, it's us. And in fact, the severing, the gouging, the cutting off of divorce does not solve the problems of lust and adultery. It actually makes them worse. Not only does it reinforce our lustful, instrumentalizing gaze, it puts wrongfully divorced spouses in compromising situations. Christ tells us this and we can relate today. For instance, single parents fight an uphill battle in our society and the church must never turn a blind eye to this. We must seek to help and to serve these parents. And if these parents have been wrongfully divorced or abandoned by another spouse, then this other spouse has willfully put the rest of his or her family into very hard situations, situations that can often bring difficult temptations with them. But Christ tells us that we must learn to look at our neighbor and our spouse rightly. We must learn to love and cherish them for they have been made in the very image of God. And Christ warns us that lust and the instrumentalizing gaze simply is not part of the Christian life. And we solve this problem by learning to come to see our neighbor rightly. But if we come to see our neighbor rightly by seeing the image of God in them, then this raises another question. Because to rightly see our neighbor, we must rightly see the God in whose very image they have been made. But how are we to do this? This brings us to our third and final point, being seen by God. If I just left this sermon here, I would be encouraging you to see your neighbor rightly, which is a good charge, but I'd simply be hoisting upon you a burden that you have no resources to carry out. So what do we do? Well, the, the, famous, the famous French story, the, the Little Prince, it contains the following advice, which helps to give the right perspective. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and, and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Yes, ships are made by collecting wood and in tasks of fashioning that wood into a seafaring vessel. But here we're told that if you really want to have this done rightly, what we need is the love of the sea. We build a ship, not ultimately for the sake of the ship, because the ship can take us to that which we love: the sea. Well, in the same way, we are to engage in practices of seeing our neighbor rightly because our hearts long for the endless immensity of God. And so to see the image of God in our neighbor, to see the neighbor as an artistic masterpiece, which they are, we have to learn to look upon God lovingly. And the only way to do this is to be pure in heart. However, for the Christian, the first question is never, what should I do? For the Christian, there's always a more basic question. It's the question of what has God already done for me in Jesus Christ? And here we come to an interesting twist. Because for the Christian, the way forward does not begin with looking at God and neighbor It begins with the way that God looks at us, specifically at the way that God looks at us in Jesus Christ. Only when we see how God looks at us can we rightly look upon God and neighbor. In Christian logic, what God has done for us in Christ always comes before what we should do. And it's important here in this passage that Christ gives special attention to the relations between the sexes. Because here, the lustful gaze often does the most damage. But it's also here that our gaze should take one of the most loving forms, as husbands and wives rightly see each other. We may marry, or we may not. Jesus here speaks as a single person, and he speaks about marriage. His own non-married status and his instruction for spouses both affirm and dignify singleness and marriage. But this isn't the whole story, because Christ, too, has looked upon a beloved bride, and he's done so in the greatest affection, in love, with no hint of lust or instrumentalizing. This is the way that Christ looks upon his church, his bride, the way he looks upon us. Speaking of marriage, Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And just before Paul says this, he actually quotes from Genesis 2, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so Paul is not only instructing us that each and every marriage is meant to point to Christ in the church. He's also telling us that this is true of the very first marriage, that of Adam and Eve. Paul tells us that just as Adam and Eve were one flesh, so too are each husband and wife. And in the Genesis account that Paul alludes to, Adam sleeps, and from his rib, God takes his rib, and he crafts Eve And when Adam awakes and when he first sees Eve, Adam explains this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam sees her. Adam loves her. Adam knows from where Eve came. She came from him. And because she came from him, there's a bond, a closeness, a one fleshness that overwhelms him with love for her he has given of himself so that she could be and this loving look and this right seeing we find a genuine picture of love but paul tells us that there's a mystery here that something is hidden something is waiting to be revealed something that we cannot fully make sense of without christ and the ancient african bishop uh, augustine is helpful on this point He explains that even here at the very beginning of creation, we already find the promise of Christ. Augustine tells us Adam is a type of Christ. Adam was, if you will, a mystery that's fully revealed in Christ. Adam's sacrifice for his wife and his love for her is a great mystery. And again, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Well, how is this so? Christ too slept, but he did not sleep on the soft garden ground of Eden, but nailed to the rough wood of the cross. He did not sleep Adam's sleep of rest, but the painful sleep of death. And unlike Adam, who was put to sleep without his accord, like a child being taken to bed, Christ gave up his life willingly, He lays it down of his own love and intention. No one takes it from him. And what is it that comes from the side of Christ? Not a rib. Hanging dead upon the cross, Christ is stabbed, and from his side flow out both blood and water. But can blood and water a bride make? Yes, because this blood and this water are the life of his bride, the church, In the blood of Christ, we are forgiven, covering ourselves with his sacrificial death on our behalf. He willingly dies for us so that he can give life to his bride, his Eve, us. And in the water of Christ's death, we are washed and purified, And it is this water and this blood that signs and seals God's covenant of salvation with us. It is Christ's blood that we drink in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. It is Christ's water in which we are washed and anointed in the sacrament of baptism. He has slept the sleep of death and poured out from his side what alone can give life to his church, his bride, his Eve. So then, let us learn to receive from the mouth of Christ those words given to Eve so long ago in the ceremony of that very first marriage. Let us learn to hear the resurrected Christ awoken forever from the sleep of death. Let us learn to hear him say to us, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She, the church, shall be called my bride because she was taken out of me, her per." her true and perfect bridegroom. This is how Christ looks at us, his bride, his Eve, his church. And only when we know that God in Christ looks upon us in this way will the hardness of our own hearts melt. Only then when we see ourselves in the gaze of this perfect love, of this perfect sacrifice, will we see ourselves rightly. We are the beloved of God himself. And only when we know this will we be able to look at others without any lust or instrumentalization. Only when you know this will you feel most fully human because you will know the fullness of God's delight in you. You yourself are the masterpiece lovingly looked upon by the author. And where is the place of any lust at all when we have heard Christ himself say to us, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Let us pray. God our Father, we thank you that you have taught us to see, not by mere command, but by the way that you look and see us. You look upon us in delight. Christ, because of Christ, you see us, as fully human. You see us as perfectly righteous. You see both what we are and what we will become. Because of this, you love us. And having been seen like this by you, help us to rightly see ourselves and each and every neighbor who's made in the image of God. In Christ's name we pray, amen.